So, pray with me. Dear Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. Please do protect everybody as they come in the snow and get everybody here safe and sound. We pray that you be glorified this morning by our Sunday school class and by our worship service. Help us to place you first and foremost. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, no. we are here in the, in the 16th century, and, and we kind of slowed down a little bit to hit the Reformation, because <coughs> in the 1500s, lots of stuff is going on. I mean, when you realize at the very end of the 1400s, that's when we you know, discovered the New World. Very beginning of the 1500s, we had the beginning of the Reformation. This has been kind of a big century to, to be hitting with different things. And we're in the, these wars of religion. And where we left off last time, if you'll remember, Europe is, is struggling a bit. There's a lot going down, people dying in droves. From 1500 on, uh, the Muslim Turks have been just growing. This is this big, huge green section that just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Turkish pirates like Barbarossa, uh, there was a, a, a European king named Barbarossa, but this is Redbeard, uh, the pirate. So if you've ever heard of Barbarossa the pirate, that's this guy. Um, I've been raiding the European coastline throughout the entire 16th century. In fact, in the span of just a little over 200 years, they have taken over 1 million European slaves from coastline cities and, set, and sold them in slavery, usually to North Africa. This is kind of huge. You can understand why the Europeans are thinking, the Turks are scary. And, and, and if you'll remember, up until really pretty much the end of the 1500s, they controlled the Mediterranean. Their navy is in total control of all this stuff. It's a scary time to be in Europe. Because if you live on the coastlines, you've got to deal with these guys. If you don't live on the coastlines, you at least still have to deal with things like the wars of religion, where you've got to worry about your other fellow Christians. Yeah? Um, Barbarossa taking the Europeans into slavery. Have we been taking... Africans into slavery at this time? Yeah, if or you're, is this something we learned from them? Yes. It's a little bit of both. Yes, um, if you remember, Spain and Portugal have figured out that you, can, you can't take Europeans as slaves, but the Pope said that you can, you can buy slaves in Africa from African slave traders. Okay. And so um, we learned, in, I mean, Europe, there's always been slavery around the world, and Europe had been enslaving one another during the Middle Ages and things, then it said, no, no more enslaving other Christians, but you can enslave pagans. And so Africans were perfectly fine with selling Africans, which is why, starting um, with Portugal and buying slaves in Africa, for the first time slavery, and from a European standpoint, first time slavery became a race thing. Up until that point, it just became a, I'm bigger than you, I've got a pointier stick, we took over your, your village, you're my slave. Now it's actually a race-based thing. Because Africans selling slaves to Africans, they never thought about it as a race thing. Europeans selling Europeans to Europeans, never thought about it as a race thing. But since the Pope said, nope, 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 can't sell, you can't buy and sell Christians. But these people of color are not Christians. So for the first time it became, the color of your skin dictates that I can't enslave you. So, so you like, could argue that it goes back to the church. You can. I would argue really what it comes down to is Portugal. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, when the, it's when the church said, Portugal, you get to have Africa, Portuguese goes, hey, you know what, they can sell slaves in Africa. We can't sell, buy and sell slaves in Europe, but we can do it in Africa. And so, anyway, um, what was I saying? I don't know, something about the French wars of religion. Anyway, these have escalated, these have gotten bigger as time has gone on. And if you remember, just to give you a heads up as to where we're at, the Huguenots, the French Calvinists, right? These are the guys with the really cool cross symbol. The Huguenots have been led by uh, Louis and the House of Bourbon, the guys from eastern France, the Lorraine, Navarre, that sort of area. These guys are slaughtering and being slaughtered by the Catholic royalists, the people who are, uh, uh, oh, another insert, okay. The people who are supporting the crown. These guys are ostensibly being led by the new king, King Charles XI. This Catholic king, new guy, supposedly being led by him, but really it's more by his mother, uh, Caterina de Medici. Remember we talked about her last time. So you got this Medici involvement here, but when it really comes down to it, it's her political supporters in the House of Guise. And if you remember, these guys also from the eastern part of France. So you've got the Bourbon and the, and the, and the House of Guise who are 
long-term rivals. They live in roughly the same area of France, and they hate each other a whole lot. So, we've got the, we, for the last 12 years, we've been fighting these wars between the Huguenots and the, and the, and the uh, Catholics. So we get to 1572, something that's called the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. This is kind of important. Um, this, is a, this, is a, this is kind of a litmus test uh, in, in, in the 16th century as to where exactly you fall along this religious wars continuum, this, this massacre here. you got a civil war going on between the Catholics and the Calvinists in France, and Catherine says, i got an idea. I know how we can stop all this. I know how everything can be happy again. Everything's fine. Much like they say, if we can just get the people in the Middle East to sit down and have some peace talks, I'm sure that the Muslims and the Jews and the Christians can all get along just fine. Hey, if we could just get the Catholics and the Irish, the Catholics and the, and the Protestants in Ireland just to sit down and talk, everything will be fine. You just go, not going to happen. It's, it's political, it's religious, it's ingrained, it's family. It's not going to get happy easy. But no, she's, I got an easy solution. My daughter Margaret, she's maybe not the prettiest of girls. <laughs> get over it, man. Uh, my daughter Margaret is of marrying age, and I want you to move on. Louis's nephew, he's of marrying age. Let's marry these two off. Because if if a representative from the Catholic Royalists and a representative from the the royal line, because the Bourbons Henri is in line of succession, just like Louis was, representative from the from the, the Calvinist Bourbons, if they could get married, then life is good, right? It's gonna work, isn't it? Totally gonna work. Now these two didn't love each other. They didn't even necessarily like each other all that much, in part because Margaret was having an affair with Henri de Guise at the time. So she's sleeping with Henri de Guise at the same time that she's being betrothed to Henri de Bourbon. These two guys could not hate each other more already, just from being part of the House of Bourbon, the House of Guise. They hate each other already. How do you think these guys are going to feel at this point in the game? Now, uh, last week, uh, Nikki said there's a there's a TV show set in this era of history uh, called Rain, uh, and it's a horrible TV show. Not only is it just sleazy, but it's historically wildly inaccurate. Proud of the fact that it's historically wildly wildly inaccurate. Okay, yeah, but this would be a great TV show. You could do it straight up history, and this would be an awesome sleazy TV show. Yeah, but yeah, you don't have to mess with this. Anyway, these guys would hate each other horribly. So. They get married, they're good people, they do what they're supposed to do, um, do their duty, they go through with it, 1572. All right. Interestingly, Henri de Guise says, I'm not happy. Everybody else is cheering today, but I'm not particularly happy about these two getting married, as, as you can imagine, right? She's marrying his rival, not happy about this kind of stuff. The Pope wasn't happy about it either. Uh, Pope Gregory XIII considered it an attack on Roman Catholic Christianity. He said, how dare you marry off the crown princess of Catholic France to a Protestant? This is horrible. You're polluting the line. What if somehow this guy accidentally becomes king sometime? Worst possible thing that we can imagine for the Catholic Church. So this is a travesty. Travesty. I refuse to acknowledge the wedding. Again, wacky fun at this day. Okay. Now, in town for the wedding, you got thousands of Huguenot nobles. Everybody comes to the wedding because they're like, all right, maybe this will work. So everybody comes to Paris. Paris is a hotbed of Catholicism at this time. Did you get this influx of all these Huguenot nobles, including an admiral, Gaspard de Coligny, who is popular with pretty much everybody. Um, he, he was specifically invited by the Queen Mother and the King. Because in part, King Charles is one of his biggest fans. This is Even though he's a Huguenot, De Colony is this great admiral, solid, decent human being, does what he does well, everybody likes him, stand-up guy. When he's walking down the street, somebody takes a pot shot at him uh, from the window of a house owned by Henri de Guise. I'm sure Henri is not in charge of this. I'm sure he didn't plan this or anything. It just happens that the guy climbed into his house, got entry into his house, got a gun into his house, and shot him. From now, so he takes a shot here at the admiral. Luckily, all it does is take off one of the admiral's fingers and go through and break his right fingers and break his left elbow. 
But the guy was trying for his chest, missed, didn't, didn't kill him, but hurt him a lot. But it did set off a problem. Even though he didn't kill the colony, it's, it, 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 it set up some issues. Can you imagine, think about why, why, that, why might that set up problems? Very popular admiral, Huguenot, shot by Catholic in Catholic Paris, filled with Huguenots. Why might that be a problem? And especially if it's an incendiary mix already. You already have people being heightened emotions. People really hate each other, stuck into a, a relatively encapsulated space, right? Oh, oh, that was, that was mean. Okay, anybody listening to the podcast, just forget what you heard. <laughs> You're part French? Well, that explains a lot. The area that doesn't know if it's German or French. <laughs> there you go. Oh, so you're like, you're like, you're you're totally rooting for Henri de Guise on this one then. Oh. Right. <laughs> because supposedly Catherine says, well, I'm afraid we're going to get reprisals from Huguenots. Uh, there's Huguenots in the surrounding villages. There's a bunch of Huguenots here in town. Tell you what, to keep this from getting ugly, we're locking the gates of Paris. And I'm going to suggest that all native Parisians arm themselves. Because this will keep this from getting violent, right? <laughs> if, if I'm concerned that there's heat and pressure, let's clamp the lid on the pressure cooker, right? Because that'll, that'll work great. The predominantly Catholic citizens of Paris began attacking and killing thousands of Huguenots. All the guys who had been in town for the wedding. In three days... Five to 10,000 Huguenots are killed within the confines of Paris, and upwards of 20,000 are killed in the surrounding villages. You got like 30,000 people killed in three days. But it's mainly Catholics against Huguenots? Oh, it's totally Catholics against Huguenots. Because the Huguenots, she was afraid that, okay, she was afraid, at least this is what she said, uh -huh. she's afraid the Huguenots might have some sort of reprisal. Now, when they were invited, they were told not to bring any weapons or anything like that because they're coming to a wedding. But all the Catholics take all the weapons out of their houses and go around and start killing all the Huguenots. So, because basically they've just been given, they have just been told the Huguenots are going to get violent about this. And so if you picture, if you tell people, um, you know, people might come to your house, Y2K might go weird and people might come to your house and take your stuff. Amazing number of people said, well, I'm buying guns then. You've been told that other people may get violent. So you say, then I'm going to arm myself and take a violent militant perspective. That's what happened here. So the Catholics start killing Huguenots all over the place. Nasty stuff. Gaspar Colony's in recovering in his apartments, right, from having gotten shot. And so he's hiding there, and eventually on the third day, the crowd, led by Henri de Guise, finally break through the guy's door. Stabbed him through the chest, threw him out the window in the streets, and he's finally killed by decapitation. Then they drag his mutilated corpse through the muddy street. They chop his corpse up in nasty ways. They do some really mean things to him. Drag him through the streets of Paris. Then they fling him into the river, pull him out of the river, hang him on a hook so everybody can see the body, then take it off the hook, and then finally burn it on a funeral pyre. They just can't kill this guy enough. Why? Why do you think? Why did Gaspar de Colony... Why is this guy that was popular, he's a Huguenot and he was popular, why is this guy the poster child of getting the brunt of all this? Did he kill some of these? Nope. Special shiny silvery penny for you. Mm -hmm. um, silvery penny. Yes. Yes, this is, this is exactly it. You, you, the, the argument that, that a lot of historians make is you go, because this guy is a likable, popular Huguenot who's good at what he does. He's exactly what all the Catholics were terrified of, is that people might actually like the Huguenots. They might actually gain power and things. So if you, if you want to take the Calvinists down a peg, you have to find a good one and make sure everybody hates him. Make sure that you... you you stir up the crowd into such a frenzy that you take the poster child of the cool Calvinist and you mutilate it. You just show hatred for him. You make sure everybody, everybody is as cruel as is physically possible. That's this really led by 
So is like the whole thing mostly orchestrated by De Geese then? I mean, De Geese and Katharina, arguably. So do you think Katharina knew it was going to turn really violent? I think she hoped it would. I mean, there's certain things that, 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 that we see. There are a lot of things where you go, if you were trying <laughs> to, to make sure this doesn't go violent, then that was the worst thing that you could possibly do. I mean, multiple decisions along the way. Um, you get the impression that she was giddily happy with this. So even the wedding was a farce? A couple of different ways of looking at that. It might have been that it wasn't, that she thought that that would work. It also might have been that, yeah, she was just trying to create a situation. Either way, once she saw that things could go bad, she, she, she totally wrote it. Yeah. Henri de Bombal also hides from the murderers. Because, I mean, you got all these people getting slaughtered right and left, and Henri de Bourbon just painted a target on himself by marrying the princess, right? But he hides, and this is the fun part. Margaret actually protects him. She actually hides him from the, from the crowds and things. Not because suddenly she's fallen in love with him or anything, but she's just like, I'm just, you're my new husband. You're not a bad guy. You're a good guy. I'm not in love with you, but I can't watch you just get torn apart by the crowds. I mean, I just saw Gaspar de Colony, this decent guy, getting ripped to shreds and mutilated by the crowd. I can't, I can't, I can't do that. Fun thing is, even when Henri de Guise comes looking for him, she hides him from Henri de Guise. Even though she doesn't love him. I'm like, this is, this is character development, man. This is a good show. I'm not in love with this guy. I'm not falling in love with this guy. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna lie even to my lover to protect this guy. I like this. This is kind of cool. Now, Henri eventually survives by saying, "Yes, I will become a Catholic. I am not a Huguenot anymore. Poo-poo on Huguenotism. No, no, I am a Catholic. I convert to Catholicism." And then they basically locked him in the court for the, for the next four years. They're like, everywhere he went, he has a bodyguard. He cannot leave. Uh, the, the court, and he's taught to be a good Catholic until he finally escapes in 1576 and then recants his conversion. <laughs> I never really meant it. Boo, boo, boo on Catholicism. But, again, you can see... I liked see your French accent. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> no, that was good. Oh, Catholicism, you stinky munch. I do not like it at all. Anyway. But, you can see why, by the time you get to, like, 1576, um, Henri is not a real solid Catholic. I mean, he's like, wait. Political one. <laughs> well, he's political, but it, yeah, yeah. He's like, four years ago, I came to try to marry into things so that we can actually get some peace. And you killed everybody as nastily as you could. You, you locked me up and forced me to be Catholic. By the time 1576 rattles around and he escapes, he's just like, oh, we are so not Catholic. We are so not Catholic, and we're not buying into that. And this whole, oh, let's just have some peace. Not going to happen. You have burned all of those bridges. Now, what's interesting is, Pope Gregory XIII loved the massacre. Big, huge fan of the massacre. This is awesome. This is exactly what we need to do. As soon as he heard about this, he wrote to King Charles, and he said, We rejoice with you that with the help of God you have relieved the world of these wretched heretics. Yay. Good job, Charles. In fact, he commissioned three frescoes commemorating the event to be put in, in the antechamber of the Sistine Chapel. Yeah, look, check it out. We're killing people right and left. This is awesome. So as you start to enter the Sistine Chapel, you get to see this. Are they still there? Yeah. Oh, and he commissioned a papal medallion with his face on one side and God's angels slaughtering Huguenots on the other, bearing the inscription, Slaughter of the Huguenots, 1572. And if you're really cool, you get one of these papal medallions. This is awesome. Okay. Good dead yeah, pretty much. Now, uh, I was going. Through, I, I like sometimes to go through my notes with Megan because she she dearly loves history and she helps me get a sense of the flow. It was at this point that she's like, I really don't think I like uh, Gregory. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> like, in some ways, he's a really good pope. I mean, he um, yes, he he made sure his own son got some goodies and things like that. But in terms of nepotism, he's not that bad. He wasn't corrupt. Didn't take bribes. Lived very simply. Seemed to be very devout about his faith with the Lord. So as, as popes go, he's not even, he just really hates the Protestants. Uh, not a nice, not a nice pope. Now, Charles, though, if you remember, Charles was a big fan of de Colony. He's just like that, he's like, my, he's like my, my, my idol. He was left physically and emotionally devastated by this. Just devastated. In fact, 
He accused his mother of orchestrating the whole thing. He said, who but you is the cause of all this? God's blood, you're the cause of it all. How can you do this? To which Katharina said, nope, I've got a lunatic for a son. France needs a new king. She's perky that way. She's a Medici. What do you expect? Right? We've had a couple of decent Medicis. I think we had like one decent Borgia. But these are messed up families. So this is roughly when Charles got really depressed and stopped eating. Um, arguably clinically depressed. And it just kept getting worse and worse until he died and his little brother Henri becomes king. Henri III. Good solid Catholic. And Katharina had made him the agent of most of the royal actions during St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. This is a guy who personally helped kill lots of Huguenots. But, even more than being a good Catholic, he was really good at being a good partier. This is what he really... He never expected he was ever going to become king. He's like, what? How many, how many have we gone through? This is like the fourth kid, fifth kid. In fact, at the time he became king of, of France, he was actually king of Poland. They had a connection with Poland, and they're like, you're never going to be king of France. You want Poland? He's like, sure, I'll take Poland. So he's out there being king of Poland and Lithuania, and they said, um, we've done run out of, out of we've done run out of our lost sons. We need you to come back and be king of France. He's like, oh, okay. So he came back as king of France. Had a string of beautiful mistresses. He, he, would, he would sleep with them for a couple weeks, get tired, and move on to the next one. Famous for having basically... Victoria's Secret model after Victoria's Secret model kind of, kind of thing going. But he also had a number of minions, little ones, which is where we get the term minions. You know, it's from <laughs> minions. These young men at court that dressed very, not just effeminately, but they dressed like French courtesans. They dressed like, this would be a perfect example of somebody where you go, drag queen. You're not just dressing like a woman, you're dressing like a streetwalker who applies her makeup with a trowel, right? So that's kind of what these guys are. They, they love to, to prance around and act extremely promiscuous and extremely overtly gay. Now, whether Henri was gay or not is a matter of some debate. We know that he slept with a lot of women. We don't know that he slept with any men, but he loved to surround himself with extremely flamboyant, extremely homosexual, extremely effeminate guys. So who knows? However you want to slice this, Henri maybe not the poster child for like a good Catholic morality of, of this sort of thing. So, um, he wasn't a Protestant. I, I kind of think so. Because the, the Pope, would, well, I don't know if I'll be able. To, hopefully, we'll be able to get this. Um, yes, part of that is he's just like, yeah, he's he's a Catholic monarch. I'm going to support him. But he's not as good a Catholic as, say, Henri de Guise. Henri de Guise is, is competent, he's charming, he's charismatic, he's extremely Catholic, and he's extremely militant Catholic. So if you're the Pope and you had your Henri to choose from, which one would you back more? So though he was fine with there being um, a Catholic Henri on the throne, from everything we can see, the Pope would have been finer with that Catholic being Henri instead of only the third. See that in a second. But i got to take a side trail, because we've been talking about Europe. got to take a little side trail. Europe isn't the only thing going on, and there's something big going on in the, in the Far East. 1577, the Golden Khan is converted. The Mongol Empire, if you'll remember, has kind of broken up into a bunch of Muslim Khanates, or Khaganates. All these are, and this is taking up all of, of Asia in massive, big, groups uh, being being uh, controlled and led by Khans, and all these are Muslim. Asia is Muslim, right? Because that's, when you think of Asia, you think Islam, right? So Asia is Muslim. When you start thinking about things like the Ottoman Empire, which has all of North Africa, all the Middle East, and half of Europe. I thought Buddhist is Muslim. You would think so, wouldn't you? That's what we tend to think of now. We're going to talk about why. And when you think about the Deccan Sultanates and the Mughal Empire in India, this is all Islam. You realize how much of the world is completely dominated by Islam by the time you get to the later 1500s. This is huge and growing. But, 
the Altan Khan, the Golden Khan, this guy, ruled this section, the Western Mongols. And to consolidate his rule, he's like, I want to get messengers from all over my kingdom. I want to get a lay of the land. I want to understand what's going on. So, amongst those messengers that come back is a Buddhist monk named Sonam Gyatso. This guy comes to the court, and he declares himself the reincarnation of a Tibetan monk, whom I'm not even going to try his name, because I don't know how to pronounce this, uh, and I don't want to mangle it. Um, but the thing about this guy, I'm a reincarnation of this guy. The thing about Drogon is that he's the guy who had converted Kublai Khan to Buddhism centuries before. And so, Sonam Gyatso says, since Alton Khan is the reincarnation of Kublai, and I'm the reincarnation of Drogol, we need to repeat the cycle, right? I'm the reincarnation of the guy who converted Kublai, and obviously you're the reincarnation of the great Kublai Khan, so you need to become Buddhist. You're Alton Khan, what do you say? No, I'm a happy Muslim? Could be. Oh, yeah, he's like, oh, yeah, I'm totally Kublai Khan. Oh, yeah, that sounds good. That, people should look at me and see Kublai Yeah, so he converted to, to Buddhism. Calling Gyatso an ocean of wisdom. This guy's an ocean of wisdom. A Dalai Lama. An ocean of wisdom. Invented a whole new thing. Stuck a Tibetan word with a Mongol word. And the title became this ongoing Dalai Lama. Now, this is huge, because not only is it the beginning of the office of the Dalai Lama, but it's also the beginning of the receding of Islam from being the dominant, completely totalitarian religion in Asia. Because now, smack down in the middle of all this, in the cognate that's growing the best, that is the strongest, now this is Buddhist. And this is where Cliff was getting at. Up until this point, for the last couple centuries, Asia has been Islamic. If you remember, uh, the, once the, the Mongols were converted, they slaughtered like every Christian, everybody in, in Asia. They destroyed, decimated everything. Now they're turning Buddhist. And so over the next couple of centuries, you're going to see this massive slide where all this stuff starts falling away and you don't have Islamic Asia anymore. Things shift over time. So this is, you see why I'm like, this is 1577 kind of important here because suddenly everything's going to change. Instead of the entire world getting Islamic and growing and growing, everything starts falling apart. And, we're, and, and, and Europe is going to start getting Eastern Europe back soon. Anyway, this is the same year that Gregory the Thirteenth plotted to overthrow Queen Elizabeth. Um, again, decent Pope just really hates Protestants, right? And she's, she's kind of gotten kind of Protestant-y. So he met with a guy named Thomas Stookley, who was an English pirate who wanted to create his own nation. Florida, if he could take it. He's like, I want Florida. And what he wants is, he's, he's like, I'm going to be a king. And he even told Queen Elizabeth that at one point. Uh, and she didn't like it, because she's like, so if you do become king of your own land, how would you address the person of the Queen of England? He's like, as a peer. My dear sister. She's like, okay, they so don't like you. And he also met with an Irishman, an Irish nobleman, named James Fitzmaurice Fitzgerald, who had already led some rebellions against English rule in Ireland. So these two guys went to Rome and met with the Pope, and they devised a plan. The Pope said, tell you what, I'm going to give you 2,000 men. Actually, some sources say 800, some sources say 10,000. The most reputable is to go with 2,000 for the day. All right, 2,000 men, I'm going to give you a bunch of ships, I'm going to give you weapons, I'm going to give you money, you're going to go overthrow... Elizabeth's rule in Ireland because Ireland is good and Catholic and then you're ultimately going to take it to England. We're going to just we're going to stick it to this Protestant ruler. This will be great. Right? This is a good plan. Unfortunately, he's took a pirate, right? And so when Sebastian the first of Portugal said, tell you what, you got a bunch of ships, you got a bunch of men, how would you like to help me to overtake Morocco? Stookley went, yeah, okay. So he totally abandoned the plan, totally abandoned Fitzmaurice, because he's a pirate! Right? So everybody but Stuckley got arrested. And it's just, it's just it did nothing, nothing happened at this. And Stuckley himself died on the first day of battle in Morocco. So that kind of didn't go anywhere. Strangely, though, well, let me go back. Strangely, though, um, this made Elizabeth just a smidgy bit more Protestant, as you might imagine. When she found out that the Pope was trying to overthrow her rule, 
she kind of didn't want to be as open to Catholicism. Everybody keeps doing stuff because Elizabeth, the moderate, is too Protestant for them, and they keep pushing her farther and farther and farther toward being a Protestant. Go figure. But, need to stop? Funky little moment. September 3rd through 13th, 1752, never happened. You will never read anything about something that happened, say, in America on September 7th, 1752. There was no September 7th, 1752. Never happened. Why? Because Gregory changed the calendar. The Julian calendar that Julius Caesar had established before Christ, it was fine. It wasn't great, though, because it didn't really take into consideration that um, the, 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 the length of the year. It had the year being approximately 11 minutes less than 365 and a quarter days. Which doesn't sound like it's a big deal, and if you do that whole quarter day thing, you do oh, well, leap year, and yeah, everything will be cool. Except, you keep, you keep missing 11 minutes every year. Which doesn't sound like it's a big deal. But if you miss um, 1,600, 11 minutes, that starts adding up, right? right? Do the math on that. What's 1,600 times 11? It's minutes. Anyway, it, it's days, but Gregory's biggest problem is it keeps screwing up Easter every year because this is a big deal for them. Every year, Easter keeps getting weirder and weirder because if you remember, the Catholics said, oh, we're not doing it the Jewish way. We're not doing the Celtic way. Uh, forget what the Jews say. We're building our Easter service on the, the vernal equinox. But the vernal equinox keeps changing because of this. And so they're like, uh, something's got to, we got to fix this. We've got to fix this so we know when Easter is. So, Oh, he wasn't Jewish. There's no denial of Jesus being Jewish. He's not Jewish. Why would you even say that? The Jews killed Jesus. Were you not reading your Bible? Wait, were you reading your Bible? <laughs> yes. Well, you see it as, actually, there was a guy that, that made an argument that Jesus wasn't really Jewish when you think about it. Um, but yeah, this is, this is saying we don't want to connect ourselves in any way to Judaism whatsoever. In fact, that's, that's what, if you remember back... In 900 years ago, this is what they were arguing against the Celtic Church, saying, "How dare you guys act Jewish?" And and the Celts are like, "But, but this is the way the Bible sets up what Passover is. When Jesus died and rose again, I mean, the Jews already have this figured out. You know, it's like." Right. That's what I'm saying. Like, that, you know, that trying to reinvent something, and then you, you wonder why. You keep having a retcon, your retcon. All right, so Gregory issues a papal bull that changes the calendar to fix the problem. At the Gregorian calendar, if you've ever heard of the Julian calendar versus the Gregorian calendar, this is the Gregorian calendar. So October 5th through 14th, 1582, never happened. Catholic Church tells the rest of the world to skip those days and catch up. We're going to reboot things, everything will be cool after this, everything's fine. The Protestants go, how dare you do that? You can't tell the rest of the world. You stole days. You stole them from people. How okay, now this is, this is entirely fair. I get why Gregory's trying to fix this. But Protestants just, just go bananas with this. You stole like nine days, ten days. This is horrible. How dare you try to control even the calendar? Do you really think you can control the movement of the spheres, Pope? How dare you? So they refuse to do it. Absolutely, categorically refused to do it. So things get a little wacky for a little while in Europe in terms of the dates. Britain and her colonies didn't, didn't adopt the Gregorian calendar until 1752. You go, wait, it's almost 200 years. Almost 200 years of, wait, of, we're not doing that, we're 10 days off. on you. Eventually, they, they're like, okay, every, even Germany finally went and did it around 1700. So they're like, all right, fine. Fine, we'll do it. So, that's why for us, September 3rd through the 13th, 1752, never happened. You go to bed on September 2nd, you get up September 14th. Ben Franklin said, you know, it's pleasant for an old man to be able to go to bed on September 2nd and not have to get up until September 14th. <laughs> <laughs> Bing, Ben Franklin, he, he tried very hard to say, 
guys, this is nothing. <laughs> guys, think of it this way. You get to sleep for like two weeks. This is awesome. <laughs> let it go. It's not that big a deal. Just let it go. But you can see what... Yeah, you want to, I didn't like living in Eastern Standard Time. When we lived in Ohio, I was like, this is wrong. This is, wrong. This is freaky wrong. You can imagine how it, But seriously, so if you ever are like, I want to look up when this happened in the colonies, you will never see anything that happened September 9th, 1752. September 10th, 1752, because it never happened. So how do you adjust, like if you're looking at dates, then you get it. Like what's it called if it's the Protestant... <coughs> The, the Catholic calendar um, in that 200 years. The Julian calendar versus the Gregorian calendar. Okay. We're okay. just staying with the Julian. You've got the Gregorian. So the Julian is the Catholic. Okay. No, no, Julian was the Protestant. Oh, Julian okay. was what uh, everybody, everybody was on the Julian calendar until Gregory said everybody should change the Gregorian okay, calendar. And all the Catholics went, okay. And all the Protestants went, no. Well, so Please come to our wedding on September 5th, 1752, or September 15th, 1752. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't be at all surprised. Well, a lot of the Eastern churches also kept trying to make use of some of the, um, the Jewish ways of calculating this. So all the things that the Catholic Church are like, no, that's that's Middle Eastern. That's not European. And the Eastern Orthodox Church goes, we we are Middle Eastern. Yes, yeah, but it's not Latin. It's not Roman. You know, we're not Latin. We're not Roman. Why should we do it your way? So, um, so yeah, it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me at all if, if that were the case. But there's actually a really complicated algorithm out there to figure out. It's like, all right, now what would this be, Julian versus Gregorian? Because you can't just go, well, add the I mean, it's complicated because it's 11 minutes every year and it's, oh, it gets weird. Anyway, so 1584, we got the, the War of the Three Almeries, because you can imagine this had to happen, right? You've got three Marys, now we've got three Almeries. You've got Henri the Third sitting on the, on, the, on the throne, you've got Henri de Bourbon and Henri de Guise. Henri the Third, the House of Bellon, sitting there on the throne. Weak guy, partying guy, but a Catholic. Busy, busy parting with his minions like his buddy Amde Joyeuse, who's a minion and a soldier. So, having a lot of fun in Paris, just being a somewhat flamboyant <coughs> king. And he's killing Huguenots right and left. This is the same year that his little brother and heir, Francis, died. So, the last of that ilk. Because we did it like me. 912 of these brothers that they've been burning through. Henri's not going to have any heirs. I mean, he's, he's, he's not producing any heirs. He's not interested in producing any heirs. Francis dies. So, if, if there's nobody left of this household after Henri III, who becomes the next king? Who's legally in line to be the next king, do you think? Just from what we were saying before. No. Close. Henri de Bourbon, because he's actually in the line of succession. So all of a sudden, people are like, oh, wait a minute, this isn't just a, well, you know, theoretically, he could become king sometime. You go, wait, he's, he's something bad happens to Henri III away from becoming king of France, legally, without conquering nothing. You just, we would have to invite him onto the throne. So there's Henri de Bourbon over there uh, in, in eastern France, from the region of, of Navarre, Henri's brother-in-law, because he's married to a sister, right? Oh, they didn't get a divorce? No. no, no they got an annulment later, but that's a whole other story. All right, but not, this time he's still married. This time he's still married to Margaret. They don't see each other very much, but it doesn't matter. On paper, they're married. So he's married to the king's brother, or to the king's sister, and he is the next one in line to the throne. And he is actually defending the Huguenots. He's like the captain of the Huguenots. He's there being the leader of that. And then you've got Henri de Guise, who's Henri de Bourbon's wife's former and occasionally still current lover from the House of Guise. Because Margaret, whom you didn't think was cute, is like sleeping with half of France. And she's got a string of lovers. Then again, so does Henri de Bourbon. So now I'm going to go back to what Donna said. <laughs> They're French. Anyway. Does she have any kids? Um, 
can't remember if they did yet. I don't remember. Uh, Alridiges teams up with the Holy League. Remember the Holy League that Pius V put together? Like the Justice League, but the Holy version. The Holy League that they put together to fight the Ottomans. Uh, and he put it together with Philip II of Spain, right? Remember that from last week? All right. So Alridiges teams up with the Holy League because Pope, the Pope sits there and goes, if I had to pick my Alridiges, kind of like the geese. This guy's a better bet. And what's interesting is Philip says, wait a minute. We've got all this money and all these people to fight the Ottomans. I've got an idea. How about we use it to fight the Huguenots? How about we take the whole Holy League and we throw it against Henri de Bourbon? Let's do that. That'll be great. Why? Because Philip really doesn't like Henri de Bourbon? Well, Philip's a good Catholic. No. But also because he's like, maybe we can get Henri III off the throne and put the Guise on the throne. And Pope Gregory says, ooh, I like that idea. I think that's a good idea. But in the grand scheme of things, Philip just says, I don't care what happens. As long as it destabilizes France, I'm happy. Right? They're my immediate neighbor. I just don't want them fighting me. And I'm building up to invade England. I'm going to invade England next week. That's going to happen next week. Totally invading England in 1588. Um, so really, pretty much, I don't care who wins. If Henri III somehow wins, fine. Then you got a weak France. If Henri de Guise somehow wins, fine. France is still destabilized, and he owes me one throne. So either way, I win. All I have to do is throw some money at him. It's not even my money. It's the Pope's money. I just throw some of the Pope's money at him, and I'm golden either way. Life is good. That's why he's a little sneaky here in the back. You can see him. He's got that kind of sneaky look on his face. Okay. One of these battles goes bad. The Battle of Coutron goes south at on of, of Joyeux. Joyeuse, yeah, of Joyeuse is killed. And so Henri III is devastated. And he says, I blame Henri de Guise. And so now, civil war erupts within the civil war. And you have Henri de Guise versus Henri de Bourbon versus Henri III. All three of them fighting all three of them. Big, big war of the three Henrys. And after the battle, Henri de Bourbon actually attends a Catholic mass to honor the dead. He's like, we totally kicked some, some Catholic booty, and so we need to show them some respect. Now, I don't know that I like Henri de Bourbon. I don't know if I'd go that far. But if you have to find a good guy to root for, this is kind of the good guy to root for. Because Henri de Guise is charismatic. He's like a Shakespearean villain. He's charismatic, he's intelligent, and he's ruthless, and he's nasty. And Henri III is, well, he's Henri III. So, kind of like the Bourbon. 1588, De Guise and the Holy League take Paris. We're going to take it away from the king. We're going to make the king have to flee for his life. We've got the support of Spain. Spain is behind us. The people are behind us because I'm like this, this folk hero of Catholicism in France, right? I've killed tons of Huguenots. Everybody likes me. Nobody really likes Henri III. They all just think he's this, this dissolute king. And so Henri has to leave Paris, leave his, his castle, leave all that kind of stuff, flee for his life. And the Guise's popularity is soaring. Everybody loves him. This is great. So you sit there and you go, Philippe goes, Philip the second goes, obviously my guy is going to get there. The Pope says, my guy is going to sit on the throne. This is awesome. But then suddenly, in 1588, Spanish support goes away. There's no more Spanish support. We'll talk about what happens in 1588 next week. But something fairly sizable happens, and suddenly Spain goes, got you into Paris, no more Spanish support, no money, no nothing. You're on your own. Now, in and of itself, you might go, oh, okay, whatever. But here's the thing. Henri now sees de Guise as a target. He's like, wait a minute. You don't have the support of Spain. Up till this point, there's no way I could take you. Now, now I think I could. So he has him assassinated. It's like, now, nah, this is great. I assassinate the Guise, I'm going to march back into Paris, everybody's happy, right? Why do you make a face? You make a, you make a face. Why do you make a face? What do you think is going to happen? I mean, the Guise was so clever, I'm, I'm just amazed that he allowed himself to get assassinated. Well, these things happen. <laughs> yeah. But he was the toast to Paris and everybody loved him, so if he gets assassinated by this guy, they're not going to like him. They're not going to like him at all. So the Catholics of France go bonkers. They charge the king with murder. You are, if we can find the king, he's under arrest. He's like, whoa, this, this is a bit of a game changer. 
Not just, we support the Guise. Can you even arrest a king? Can you charge a king with murder? If he offs somebody you love that much, yes. And so the king says, thanks. So he has to find somebody strong enough to support him, to protect him. Who could he possibly go to to find protection from the masses of Catholics who now hate him? Henri de Bourbon! And so he comes up to Henri and he goes, I'll throw you all of my forces and all of my support if you somehow protect me. And Bourbon goes, yeah, okay. Wait a minute. The only other people that are actively fighting against me will now be on my side, and the king will owe me something. Yeah. Yeah, I'm fine with that. Because yeah. the Catholics hate me anyway. I'm not losing ground, right? So, sure, I'll take them in. They, they establish their own parliament and tools. They, they're like, yeah, no, that's, that's great. Let's set up our own government here. That's all right. That'll be good. Now, Henri de Guise's widow, Catherine de Guise, is not happy with all this. She's like, my husband is dead. i got to do something about this. So she finds this fanatical French monk named Jacques Clement, who I maintain is being played by Peter Lorre. <laughs> and once you see that, you can't unsee this being Peter Lorre. You ruined it for life for me. Ruined it. Anyway, so I took out Peter Lorre, and he still looks like Peter Lorre. Okay. Convinced him that the only way to save French Catholicism is to avenge the murder of her husband. You need to take out the king. Because he's weak, he's disloyal, he's sinful. Don't you think he's sinful? Oh, yes, I think he's sinful. You need to avenge my husband's murder. So, he gets forged papers and gains entrance to, to, to talk to the king. And while the king is looking over the papers, he stabs the king and kills him. Because that will save French Catholicism, right? Yeah! Suddenly, Henri de Bourbon becomes the legal king. You go, sweet. This guy is actually dumb enough to think if I off Henri III, it will help the Catholic Church. I just made Henri de Bourbon the first legal Protestant Huguenot king of France. Kind of big. One really stupid knife thrust on the, on the part of the Roman Catholic Church. And the Bourbons reign in, the, in France for the next two centuries until the French Revolution. Which is why you'll hear one of the things that they chant in the in the, in the, during the French Revolution is down with the Bourbons because that's the ruling family. Interesting part in history. And, and, and I want you to see how these political machinations, people are trying very hard to promote their religious viewpoints through political machination. Can we, can we marry to, to get our, our religious viewpoints across? Can we assassinate to get our religious viewpoints across? What happens when you do that? What would you say? What happens when you when you say, I'm going to establish religion by politics, by assassination, by war? Yeah? You force the moderates to become, if not extremists and fanatical, at the very least, devout. You, there's, there's nobody that's involved in this that takes a moderate tone. And the people in the street either are like, I don't want to talk about this at all, or I will take up arms and be fanatical. What else? It's not very How so? Uh, well, as far as loving, you know, loving your neighbor and not killing, and just a host of things. Yeah. This is, well, and, and this is exactly the opposite of what the Celts said. If you remember, the whole Celtic thing was, no, 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 no. You don't deal with this from the top down. You don't deal with this from a governmental thing. You, you build relationship. You have an authentic Christianity that you interact with one person about, two people about. You invest in, your, in their lives. They see your authentic Christianity, and they become authentic Christians. That's how you do outreach. This is the exact opposite of what Scripture is saying, exact opposite of what the Celts were trying to do. Yeah? About the timeline Jesus kept over it was the reign That's true. This... Wait, that never happened. There was no timeline where Jesus... I think Jesus even specifically said, Peter, put down your sword. We're not doing it that way, right? It's flat out against Scripture. But also it's interesting because, and, I, and I, I, I was just talking to my kids about this again this week. When you... And I was talking to Sarah about this the other day. When you, when you have Christianity um, involved in a social movement, and you say the social movement 
is going to go forward, even if it was birthed from Christianity, it's going to go forward and we're not making Christianity the focal point of it anymore. Even if we say, oh, it started with a good Christian principle, the social movement will become the whole point. It will completely eclipse Christianity. I don't care if you say uh, the civil rights movement uh, is based on what Christ said in, in the New Testament, what Paul said in Philemon. You know, we're, we're building this off of, uh, of God's heart. You go, right. As long as you are nailing it to Scripture, as long as it's based in Scripture, it can be a Christian social movement. But once you say, well, we don't necessarily have to nail it to Scripture, you go, give it a couple decades, it will have absolutely nothing to do with Christianity anymore. Oh, well, we, because Christians love people and take care of the poor, then uh, we're a Christian social agency that helps the poor across the world. You the YMCA. Like the YMCA. Like most of the universities in the United States started off as Christian universities. And hospitals, all these different things. Um, uh, a lot of the social agencies taking care of, like when you adopt kids in, in, in underprivileged countries, you go, yep. I'm not saying that any of these things are bad things. But once you say, well, we're not going to make Christianity like the main point, you know, then it very quickly becomes a secular social movement. It's not evil, but you can't pretend it's a Christian ministry. Anymore. You can't pretend that Harvard is, and Princeton are still Christian universities. You can't pretend that hospitals are still Christian institutions by definition. You can't pretend that. And so this is a perfect snapshot of that, where you sit there and you go, we're killing people because they're Protestants and Catholics. And you go, you do realize you gave up this being anything Christian a while back. You might still slap some Christian labels on it, but you're slaughtering people. You're this has just become politics and fighting. You know, no, we're doing politics and fighting for Jesus. You know, no, you're just doing politics and fighting. Right now, you're still just slapping Jesus on it. Give it another century, you're not even going to do that. But we need to be very careful that what we do, we do very consciously, biblically, very consciously, prayerfully, very consciously God-oriented. Because otherwise, even the good stuff that we do is just going to be a good stuff that we do. It's going to cease to be worship. It's going to cease to be obedience to God. And all it's going to be is the same stuff that the secular world does. This is just a big, colorful expression of that. So, next week, we'll have some more fun in 1588. But for right now, let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity to to look at what's come before us so that we understand what's going on now. Help us to appreciate, Father, how easy it is to, to make assumptions that what we're doing is right and that we, ha we really need your heart and your Holy Spirit to show us when our hearts are leading us astray, when we're no longer thinking in ways that honor you. Help us to love you consciously, actively, every day, and to look at our actions, look at our hearts every day and say, is this... Is this what God wants? We'll give this to you in Jesus' name.